Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Rory Stewart, former politician and prisons minister, and now senior fellow at Yale University, to talk about his time in the Ministry of Justice and the importance of accountability, as well as the challenges bringing about positive change in the justice system. My name is Rory Stewart and I am now teaching at Yale University, but I used to be a British politician and I particularly got to know you when I was Minister of State in the Ministry of Justice, responsible for prisons. And before we get into the podcast, Rory, um, I'm just going to quickly give a synopsis of your rather crazy um, sort of 24 months from when I met you. So you became the prisons minister in January 2018 and you did 16 months in that job. And in May 2019, you were promoted to cabinet as Secretary of State for International Development. You can correct me if I get any of this wrong, by the way, but this is all according to Wikipedia. And in July 2019, just sort of two months later, you resigned from the cabinet, citing um, not being able to get on with the leadership particularly well. And then in October of the same year, you then resigned from the Conservative Party. And in that same month, you then announced that you were going to run for Mayor of London. And it was only then a few months after that, that the pandemic came along and uh, really put that idea to bed as well. Um, and now, of course, you're in America. So I just wanted to put that out there because it has been a really insane time for you, I think, um, certainly in that short space of time that I've known you for. So if we go back um, to January 2018, which is when you became the prisons minister, first of all, I'd like to ask you whether you enjoyed that job. I loved that job. Best job I ever did in government. I think most satisfying, fulfilling, interesting job I ever did. In fact, in nine, ten years of being a politician, it's, it's the one role that I really thought was worthwhile. And lots of our listeners won't be from the justice system and they'll be wondering what on earth the prisons minister does. So can you explain? So the prisons minister job is a very odd one. You're number two in the Ministry of Justice, but it's a job which, where you're responsible for all the prisons in England and Wales and also for probation. So uh, prisoners who've been released um, from prison, and also for sentencing. And I said it's an odd job because uh, one of the strange things about the way that British politics works is that 
it's always a little bit vague who exactly is responsible for what. So if you're a minister, but there's also a chief executive of the prison service. There's also a secretary of state, and of course, there's a prime minister. I very much interpreted the role as meaning that my role was to run those prisons, but other people, I think, have approached the job in different ways. And what were your biggest frustrations during that time? I, I could imagine there was many, but I'm always trying to get to the bottom of, and I've worked with um, so many prisons ministers over the years, and you did 16 months, which is actually sort of a relatively long time compared to some prisons ministers. But I've always been trying to get to the bottom of what power you actually have as a prisons minister. So you have enormous power but it takes a lot of skill and experience to work out how to use that power and i was very lucky i mean i'd been in politics for eight years and i'd been a minister i think four different ministerial roles before i got this so i'd begun to get a little bit more skill and ability in working out how to make these jobs work and there are certain very clear lessons one of them is identifying as quickly as possible what you think the main problem is in your department and what it is you're trying to fix. And in my case, uh, what really worried me is that it struck me that prisons were often filthy, awash with drugs and very unsafe. And it was particularly that last thing that really worried me, that prisons had become very, very violent. I just didn't think these were decent, safe places to live in. So identifying the problem. And the second thing is finding a very clear way of explaining what you're going to do about it to the people who work with you, prison officers, the public, and then coming up with a plan and driving that thing through. And it's a very, uh, it's a more difficult thing to do than you would have thought because it's not like running a business or a charity where you're clearly the only person in charge. In politics, there are always dozens of different uh, powers, legal constraints, challenges about who can do what. It's always a bit muddled, things a bit muddled. Um, so to some extent, politics is always, particularly getting things done, involves an element of bluff. You have to believe that you're in charge, say that you're in charge, assert that you're going to do these things. And the most uh, powerful way of doing that, I found, was to say it was my fault. So the way that I really put myself in that position is that right out of the beginning, when right at the beginning of my time, two weeks in, crisis in Liverpool prison, called in front of the select committee of the House of Commons, what's going on here? And it was very important for me to say, it's all my fault. It's nobody else's fault. It's my fault. The problem with Liverpool prison, and I'm going to sort it out. And I'm going to be back to you. And in a few months' time, it's going to be better. And that puts you in a very strong position because, not surprisingly in government, very few other people are prepared to say it's all their fault. Most other people want to shift the responsibility onto someone else. But what happened at HMP Liverpool, which was sort of, you know, blown up um, at that time when you just joined? That wasn't your fault. <laughs> that was a historical problem that you inherited. So why was it so helpful to say that it was your fault actually when it wasn't? It's partly that the very distinguished um, senior guy next to me uh, was spending a lot of time explaining why it wasn't his fault and why it was nothing to do with any of the stuff that he'd done. So that slightly irritated me. But the second thing is that I think it's very important in a democracy that the buck stops with the minister and that you're able to point to someone and say, this is up to you. So I, I just thought it was really important to say, yeah, OK, it's not my fault, obviously, in the sense that I was running Liverpool prison over the last four years, but it's definitely my fault now <laughs> because and you can definitely look at me and if I don't sort this out, you can fire me. 
right? I'm promising you that this is my job and my job is to sort this out and I expect to be judged by whether or not I sort it out. Okay, we're going to come back to um, sort of what you did to reduce the sort of drugs and violence um, in a minute. But when you first came into the Ministry of Justice and you started going into the prisons, how were you received by members of staff in the Ministry of Justice and in the prisons? But, you know, was there any sense of any eye rolling, sort of here comes another minister? Definitely. I mean, so uh, as you as you say, they're an incredible number. These ministers roll through every year. So... Um, it was very clear when I turned up that the expectation was that the minister wouldn't do very much. There wasn't any money, there wasn't much a minister could do. And you were going to be managed. Uh, and I very much felt that when I started trying to say, no, 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 I want to change things. And even worse, when I began saying, actually, this is a disgrace. This has really been screwed up. I think this has been run in the wrong way for the last five years. Obviously, people got very angry and thought, what on earth are you talking about? You don't know anything about prisons, right? Because, of course, the people I'm saying this to um, are people who've worked in the prison service for decades, right? And when I say this is a disgrace, this is not how prisons should be run, I am directly criticizing what they are trying to do. And, of course, they are very aware that they're doing it in very difficult circumstances. So one has to have a lot of sympathy for them. There have been huge cuts, lots of prison officers have been laid off, the money had been reduced. So very understandably, they felt, hey, 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 this is not my fault, this is the fault of the politicians. They cut the prison officers, they cut the money. How dare you say we're not running this stuff right? And above all, how dare you come in and say that you think you're going to be able to do a better job than we're doing? So it is a very difficult conversation to have. You decided to take on 10 particular prisons, didn't you? And you said, I will reduce violence and assaults and drugs. And if I don't manage to do that in 12 months time, I will hold my hands up and resign. Actually, you said, didn't you? You said, if things don't get better, that is my fault and I'll walk out the door. What made you do that? And what were the results of the 10 prison project? So I, I did it partly um, by accident. So I was, as usual, banging on, I think, in a television interview saying, um, I'm going to sort this out. It's a disgrace. We're going to make these things better. And the television interviewer said to me, will you resign if you haven't managed to do this in 12 months? And I thought, yeah, I suppose I would. I'm confident enough that I can do this. And I, I believe this plan will work. And I think it's fair enough to say, if I haven't managed to do it, you should kick me out and get someone who can. Um, I chose to focus on 10 prisons because there are over 120 prisons in England and Wales and turning around a system is very difficult and it's much, much easier to try to focus on a limited number of things, particularly if you're trying to do something different. So concentrate on 10 prisons and then had to come up very quickly with an analysis of why I thought violence was out of control and why drugs were out of control. And there were different things. One thing is I didn't think people were being searched properly at the gates. We didn't have the right kind of scanners. We didn't have the right kind of dogs. We didn't have the right kind of processes at the gates. Secondly, I thought there was a culture of just not taking care of the buildings. You know, when I turned up in Liverpool prison, all the windows were broken. So people were sticking their hands out the window and taking drugs off drones, as well as it just being a depressing, miserable thing. Thirdly, I thought people were not focusing enough on the question of safety and violence. I felt people were not challenging uh, the minority of prisoners that were making life miserable for other prisoners, weren't challenging them in the right way, weren't setting clear rules and holding to them. And I felt that with the right kind of 
priorities and the right kind of training of prison officers, this was very much stuff that could be turned around. But it wasn't rocket science. So it's very important to, to me to feel this really isn't rocket science. There's no reason why all these windows need to be broken, why there needs to be so much filth, why you can't search people at the gates, why we can't make prison safer. So I've got the statistics here to hand on the results of um, that 12 months. And actually, uh, the rate of assaults went down by 16%. The number of actual assaults went down by 17%. And the number of positive results from mandatory drug tests went down by 50%. Now, probably people will be saying, where are those stats from? Um, and of course, I went straight to Wikipedia, but then checked them with the official statistics from the Ministry of Justice. And those stats are correct. The one thing that I was left wondering was if the stats were gathered by um, HMPPS, how... <laughs> How independent is that if actually the results are dependent on their minister resigning? I think that's a very good question. I mean, one of the things I had to say right at the beginning of this is to make it as fair as I possibly could and to try to get journalists and others into the system and say to them, what is a fair judgment of this? Because what I don't want to do is people at the end of 12 months to say, you've just played the system. This is all a cheat. And it was also very important for me to say to the minister itself in internal meetings we're really going to do this. I'm not interested in us playing around with figures and pretending that we've done this. And I'm going to take the risk of resigning if for some reason we can't do this. And they said, look, you're setting yourself up for failure here. The violence had increased every year for the previous five years. It felt like you were on a graph that was just going to continue forever. And the assumption was you couldn't turn it around because the drivers of this violence were so deep and intractable. They went right back to people's childhoods, the fact they'd been in care, their literacy rates, all the addiction rates, mental health issues. There's no way these are things that you could fix within 12 months. You know, these are big society issues. That's what's driving violence. So, um, and they also said that the other problem is that if you begin focusing on this, actually what you'll find is people will start recording more assaults as they start focusing more on violence, you'll have a temporary situation of the assaults going up. And indeed, we did. For the first three, four months, there was a little spike. Because as we tried to clamp down, it actually provoked more violence as we tried to take back control of those prisons. Um, I mean, I think the other thing to say is that this is a tribute to the prison officers, the people on the landings, not to me. Right? I, they did it. My confidence in saying that it could be done was my confidence in those prison officers, right? It was that I could see there were some very good people. If they were allowed to, they could reduce it over the next 12 months. I was really betting on the professionalism, the ability, the, the sense of public service to the prison officers, and it was they that actually did it, not me. I was just the minister. So throughout, across those 10 prisons, I think, did you receive £10 million in funding in order to do what it was you needed to do? I received a million pounds per prison. Sounds like quite a lot of money, but actually isn't a lot of money in terms of the budget of the prisons, particularly given how much we were having to do. But yes, that allowed us to get some quick money in to buy the scanners, fix some of the windows, set up a training course for prison officers to try... Uh, uh, I'm very proud about rewriting a checkbook for doing prison searches, etc. It gave us a bit of money to do that. But, you know, that's out of a 
Minister Justice budget, which was running in the billions. So it, it was not a big movement of money within the system. It was the money that allowed me to get these pilots off the ground. And the nice thing about it is that actually, as we began to do that in the 10 prisons, it began to spread across the wider system. So a lot of what we were doing in those 10 prisons, we were also pushing through the other 110 prisons. And we began to see violence coming down in them too. The, the, the sad thing, of course, which is the story of reshuffles, is that as soon as I left, most of the energy went out of this and people reverted back to what they thought beforehand. Because in the end, where I probably failed is that I didn't succeed in convincing enough of the senior people in the Ministry of Justice that, that this was the right way to do it. They went along with it so long as I was there, and I had quite a lot of support from prison officers on the landings and some of the governors, but broadly speaking, at the mid-senior levels, they were very suspicious of what I was doing. So when I left, they tended to go back to business as usual. The person who took over from you was Robert Buckland, who um, then was in the prison's minister job, I think only for a couple of months before he then became the Secretary of State for Justice. So, I mean, if you blinked, you missed everything during those few months. But because you were in the same party, why is there no continuity of picking up where the last person left off if that person is actually doing their job and doing the right thing for the prisoners, for the staff that work in those um, prisons and for the taxpayer who pays for those prisons? I think there are two problems. I mean, one of them is leadership from the top. So um, if the prime minister is very engaged in something and really communicates it and it's in a manifesto, that will provide a certain kind of certainty as ministers change. So for better or for worse, when Mrs. Thatcher was Prime Minister, everybody had a very, very clear idea about what she thought about certain things. So ministers would change, but broadly speaking, her vision of the world would be continued. Everybody instinctively felt what it was the Prime Minister would have wanted to do in that situation. One problem. Second problem, that what I was doing in prisons was not really policy in the way that politicians normally think about it. Politicians normally uh, think about policy in terms of passing laws or manifesto statements. What I was doing was much more about operations, management, administration. It was about being on the landing, spotting that the cell inspections weren't happening properly, challenging why there weren't more dogs and wormwood scrubs, challenging what was happening with fixing windows, looking at the train. I mean, this is very operational stuff. And this is stuff that, you know, is bread and butter to me because I ran a lot of things before I came into government. You know, I ran NGOs in Afghanistan, I provinces in Iraq. I mean, I, I'm, I was a civil servant as well. So I'm, I had a lot of experience doing stuff. And then I was briefly in the army when I was younger. So that isn't true um, of my colleagues. My colleagues often are not very interested in running things in that way. And if you look at the seven prison ministers before me, they would tend to be very focused on sort of policy changes, you know, should we or should we not have books in prison? Or, you know, what view should we take about technology? Or what view should we take about prison investment? They weren't very interested, or maybe they weren't very confident in the question of what happens if you just spend hours every day with prison officers thinking about how it's run. You know, uh, you know let me maybe finish on this. You'd see it uh, if you were looking at somebody who was working on education. There are two ways of thinking about education. You can think about it in terms of, I'm going to try to change the curriculum, so make people nationally focus more on maths and English and less on drama, right? Or you could do what I'm doing, which is really be interested in what the difference between a good and a bad school is, and really get into the question of how people are teaching 
what's happening in those classrooms, what she can do to support the teachers, what a good head teacher feels like. And, and so I'm, I'm more that second thing. Okay. And people often get quite obsessed with the topic of prisoners in prisons for obvious reasons. Um, I sort of sit there kind of um, a lot of the time wondering about the staff, actually. And, you know, over the years worked with hundreds of prison officers um, in various different ways. And I keep coming back to this fundamental point that prisons are a place of employment, so they should not be dirty and unsafe and like the Wild West, like HMP Liverpool was when you took over. And I just simply don't understand. When you sort of go to work in an office, you know, people make sure that you don't have a crick in your back. And now that COVID, the pandemic has taken over, everyone's saying, if you're working at home, get up and walk around, do a few star jumps. And you sort of think, my God, prison officers are going into work and sometimes getting their throats slashed. And if that doesn't make the government of the day stand up and say, my God, this is just appalling, this cannot happen, because it would not be allowed to happen in hospitals, in hotels, in schools, in any other place in the whole country without someone being sacked or sued. So please, can you help me to understand why prison officers have to put up with this level of violence in the workplace? Well, I, I, they shouldn't. Um, they are clearly uh, some of the most impressive public servants we have. I mean, the, what prison officers are dealing with is beyond anyone's imagining. I mean, it's an extraordinary job. You know, you are having to deal with very, very difficult, challenging people often. You may have to, very sadly, cut down somebody who's committed suicide. You may, as you say, be attacked yourself. Many, you know, there were, when I took over, there were 10,000 assaults a year of prisoners on prison officers. That's a, that's a lot of assaults. Right? And when you remember there are only, at that stage, probably 20,000 prison officers, um, that's nearly half the prison officers being assaulted. And if you actually, if you take it down to the landings, um, you know, it'd be an even higher proportion of people. Um, so they need to be very unusual people. They need to be a combination of social workers, teachers, police officers, friends. I mean, it's a very complicated job they're doing. And uh, one of the strange things about British society that you put your finger on is that there are certain kinds of roles. Being a prison officer is one. To some extent, being a soldier is another, where we expect people to live in the most extraordinary conditions and undertake extraordinary risks and make extraordinary sacrifices for very, very small salaries. We're requiring of them to really live out a life of sort of almost a life of vocation. It's not exactly a normal job. And I think we need to pay prison officers more, we need to make things safer for them, but we also need to do something else, which is we need to give them proper respect and honour for what they're doing. Because in the end, that's the only thing you can really say to somebody who is literally risking being beaten up or even tragically in some cases, very badly injured in prison, is what you can say to them and to soldiers, which is that in the end, we are hugely grateful and that most of us couldn't do that job. And if you if you lose the ability to give people honour, right, to really show moral admiration for what people are doing, your society is in real trouble because a lot of your government in the end depends on people who aren't doing it for the money and who are in conditions that most people wouldn't want to put up with. 
And one of the big problems that has been well rehearsed is the fact that our prisons are stuffed full and there's very little room. And yes, there are more prisons being built, um, but if the regimes don't change, then you know they will succumb to the same problems as the other prisons. And quite a lot of people in prison are there for non-violent offences. So what what's your view on the kind of you know, predatory violent person versus the non-violent. You've ended up in prison maybe through a a traffic offence where you might have been looking at Google Maps on your phone and very sadly you did hit a pedestrian in the road. You know, there's big differences. So what's your view on on that and how we could fix the overcrowding problem? I mean, I think it's very, very difficult. I mean, if you think about that case that you've just given us... um, the family that's lost their child or relative is devastated and they will often feel that what's happened is a form of murder and they will want to see justice done and they will want to see a punishment. Um, Whereas, of course, on the other hand, from the point of view of the person driving the car, they will feel, well, they didn't intend to do it. It's not a murder in that sense. It was awful. Um, Presumably they feel profoundly guilty, but they were not trying to do that, right? And they'll feel that's an important difference. Um, Even more complicated, I think, are the people that prisons are really full of, and I don't think should be full of, which are people on endless short sentences who haven't actually killed someone, right? Um, People who are in for petty shoplifting. And I I saw a man in Bradford prison who'd been in nine times that year. Was he coming in for a couple of weeks, being released, being rearrested again? I mean, it's completely insane, right? You're running a sort of travel lodge, the average stay in Durham prison when I was a minister was 10 days. But this is a complete madness because a prison is a very complicated, big machine. It's the most extreme manifestation of a state and government. You deprive someone of their liberty, you lock them up in a cell, you have total control over them. That is a very powerful tool and it should be used in a limited way and the right way and on the right people. And there's no point doing it to someone who's only in for two weeks. They've barely arrived before they're out the door again. You've had them in for enough time to damage them. You've had them enough time to probably screw up whatever rent they had or job they had or whatever they were doing outside, but not long enough to do anything to try to work with them or reform them. So my view is there is no point to sentences of under two years. But half our prisoners are in for these very, very short sentences, less than six months often. So, I mean, I think this is crazy and it's not good for the public. It's not good for the victims. I mean, I'm not just saying it's not good for the prisoners. It's not good for the public either because actually it leads to more reoffending. Yeah, and it clogs the courts up and it's bad for the police, but bad, just bad for everybody. So the answer therefore lies in the community. Um, but of course, there's a problem there too because our probation system was sort of um, deconstructed which is a polite way to put it, I think. So actually, you know, often when I talk to judges and magistrates, they say, yeah, great, I'd love to give them a community sentence, but they simply don't exist. And the ones that do exist, we have simply no faith in. It's a big, big problem. You're absolutely right. Um, So from a theoretical point of view, a community sentence is better than a short sentence because even a bad community sentence on average is less likely to lead to someone re-offending than putting them in prison for a few weeks. But the truth of the matter is far too many reoffend, both from prisoners and with people with community sentences. And a lot of community sentences simply don't do enough. There's not enough around them. People don't turn up. They don't do properly what they're supposed to be doing. There isn't much intervention. 
And a lot of that is to do with the fact that they're not properly funded. Right? There's not actually enough money or thought going into how to design a community sentence that really works for somebody. I was wondering, without getting sort of deep into the um, sort of devolution argument, um, there has been a problem, I think, of the sort of centrality of government and, and sort of um, the Ministry of Justice, HMPPS. So are you an advocate of actually bringing things down to the county level, where you have the county police, you have the police and crime commissioner, you have local services or not, at least you can see where there are gaps in provision. Are you an advocate for sort of more, yeah. more of a local agenda? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Um, I think it should be localised, uh, but it should also be funded. I mean, I think the problem is if you drop it on local authorities and you don't fund them and you don't make it a priority for them, it will fall by the wayside. But yeah, of course, it's something that works best on a local level, because often what you're trying to do is also help people into local housing, local employment, local community projects. I mean, so it is all local. Um, and one of the problems with government is it always thinks it's cheaper to make things less local. So the tension that we had, I, I got very involved with David Gork, who was this absolutely brilliant Secretary of State that I was very lucky to work for. And in fact, actually, a lot of the story that I haven't brought out is a credit to him. The reason I was able to do any of these things is because he, who was my boss, let me, got behind me, supported me, and made it clear to people that he wanted them to get behind the programs I was bringing forward. And he was very unusual in that way. I, I never had a boss like him in government. But one of the things he did very bravely, um, and I worked very closely with him on, was trying to reverse the privatization of probation, which had been done by Chris Grayling take it back into government hands again, because the privatization had been a disaster, a real disaster. Uh, I mean, we don't have time to talk about it, but it, it was an amazing example of something that sounded fine if you said it quickly, but in practice was just a catastrophe. Um, but when they renationalized, of course, instead of putting it back at the county council level, there was an attempt to create these weird kind of regional structures. You know, we're gonna have nine regional probation officers and things. And of course, that's because the government thinks it's more efficient. It means they only have to find nine able directors rather than having to find, you know, 40 able directors. But it does mean that it's much more difficult for the local authority to inter interact because, you know, one probation lot is dealing with many, many counties. And so I'm all for localization, all for localization. What do you think our prisons do particularly well? Because I'm always conscious in these podcasts that, um, you know, you and I share a sort of strange love, actually, for the prison system and the people who work within it. And I think, you know, the rich, the richness of working in that area is so great, actually. Um, so what does the system do well? well? I think the first thing is we have some very, very dedicated prison officers. I think it's gone through an incredible transition since the 1980s when there were real serious problems of bullying and brutality in prisons. And that's been addressed very well in British prisons. Uh, the culture of prison officers uh, has changed very dramatically, and that's a real testament to a, a type of leadership. Um, I think that people are putting more and more of an emphasis, for example, on thinking seriously about how you deal with suicide and how you assess people with suicide risks. I think we're more sensitive um, to the root causes. I think people are more interested in how you make the connections between prison and probation and try to prevent reoffending. And I think it's also true that we are 
attracting some very brilliant uh, young graduates, actually, to become prison officers now at the moment. And new generations of prison officers and prison governors, some of whom are some very talented women. Um, so I think there's a lot positive. What we shouldn't lose is the key lesson, I think, of working in difficult schools, which is getting the balance right between being loving and strict, not one or the other. Right? The awful tendency in British government is always to lurch from one to the other, so totally overreact. So be too strict in the 1980s, too much bullying, and then suddenly Liberty Hall, no rules, whole thing collapses, right? It's getting that balance right, understanding that, you know, relationships are very important, love is very important, but it's also very important, particularly dealing with people who've had very difficult lives, to have some structure and some clarity and some rules. Uh, and... Uh, feeling our way towards that, understanding this is, in the end, a proud, uniformed service, which has a very difficult job of actually locking people up against their will in a guarded compound. Um, but that we're also asking them to do a lot of work, which would be more similar to the work of a teacher, a social worker, a psychologist, getting those things together, not throwing the baby out of the bathwater. It's interesting that you mentioned schools, because I was about to ask you about the children's estate, which is in sort of, I think, dire need of um, reform. And then what your views are on the um, secure school, which um, has been mooted for many years. Well, I think that's very difficult. I mean, I, I, I and I'm getting outside my area of expertise. I mean, I dealt with adult male prisoners and... Um, you're absolutely right. A lot of the most difficult challenges and actually a lot of the things that gets a lot of public interest are young people and, of course, women in prisons, neither of which I dealt with. I dealt with much more conventional, the big majority of the population, which are the adult male prisons. I think it's extremely difficult dealing with young people, particularly since, generally speaking, um, judges and magistrates do their very best not to send young people to prison. It's not the problem that you have in the adult male estate where there are a lot of people who obviously shouldn't be there. There are unfortunately quite a lot of people in, uh, in young people in prison who are, you know, have very, very difficult lives, personalities and histories. And I think it's an extraordinarily difficult job working with them. But again, I would be reaching out to some of the very successful schools. You know, Felton, I think, has done this a little bit which have been through the process of working with very troubled children and difficult communities and seeing if there are lessons to be learned. Yeah, I think it always comes back to the fundamental problem, though, doesn't it? If you have prison officers who aren't trained um, in any great depth in educating children or mental health problems or administering sort of drugs like nurses, you know, there's so much that's asked of them and they're not really trained in any of that. So it's almost like we're sort of asking the impossible of the people who look after these children. And of course, there's some highly trained psychiatrists and psychologists, but then you've also got the problem of these sort of dilapidated buildings staff burnout. So I remember being at Feltham actually and talking to the governor and she didn't have enough staff. Um, she certainly wasn't going to get any more money. She said, I can't use that building over there because it's about to collapse. The children weren't getting time out of cell and getting the exercise that they needed. So as you say, it's a bit like going back to Liverpool. Yes, the punishment is the, uh, the removal of someone's liberty, but it's not then giving the children vitamin D supplements because they're not getting enough sunlight, which is what was sort of happening. It's horrible. It's really horrible. 
And it's the great scandal in Britain. I mean, it's the one bit of our society which I think is the most extreme example of how this quite prosperous country is letting people down. You know, it's the one thing I really saw. I mean, there were other bits. I mean, I, I think some of the poverty in some of the communities in the northeast of England, I mean, places like Easington Colliery, are pretty shocking. But prisons are, for me, the most shocking thing that a country as wealthy as us could be keeping people in those kind of conditions. And the sad truth is that public sympathy is so limited. In fact, the public often convince themselves that prisoners are sort of living in holiday camps. There's a lot of sort of stories in the newspapers about this. I never saw that. I mean, being in prison is horrible. It's horrible, right? Some of these prisoners may pretend they're living in a holiday camp as a sort of macho thing. So they may, you know, swagger around and take photographs themselves and try to pretend that they're having a great time. They're not having a great time. It's, it's horrible. You know, you're sharing locked up in a Victorian cell built for one person and there are two of you crammed in it and you're defecating in front of each other and you stuck in the cell, you know, most of the hours of the day and there's very little going on in your life. It's that is not that is not a good place to be. Sometimes when I'm walking into a prison, I walk past the sign that says Her Majesty's Prison Service. And I often wonder whether Her Majesty would be proud of these places. And I wonder whether it's a bit of a, a branding issue that a lot of these places are full of people committing suicide and 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 self-harming. You know, it's not to say there aren't positive things going on in prisons. Yes, I will recognise that, but for the point of yeah. saying they need to get better. One of the interesting things is, is the role of, of course, Princess Anne, who has taken a lot of interest in this and has put a lot of energy into it. Um, and actually, Prince Wells has also uh, taken quite a lot of interest in this. I went around Dartmoor with him. But I do think... Uh, the Her Majesty's in front is quite important because it's a way of reminding people that this is a serious public service, that it does have some of the kind of honour and history and tradition of the military, for example, and that we should treat people who work as prison officers with some of the same respect and that, that we uh, instinctively give to people like soldiers. But that's the problem, isn't it? We don't, I feel, do much of that. No, well, because we don't understand and because the public is confused. I mean, the public, it's a sort of guilty secret, isn't it? I mean, prisons are, nobody, most people have very little contact with the prison. It's not like a school where everybody's got a kid or a niece at school. Some bits of society have a lot of contact with prisons, but the majority of people don't have anything to do with the prison and they don't want to think about prisons. My final question is really about um, accountability because I feel we could go on talking about prisons forever and there's so many different topics we could cover. But for me, again, you know, as you know, I'm someone who has dedicated 20 years of my life so far to prison reform and I'll be carrying on doing it until I'm as old as I possibly can be, hopefully uh, near the age of 100 or something still marching around and prisons being bossy and um, trying to change things. But for me, accountability is a really big thing. And I think it's a really big problem. Because in any organisation, any well run organisation, you have to have accountability in order for anything to work. And I see time and time again, as I'm sure you have, that there is little to no accountability some of the time in this world. Absolutely. So I began by saying that probably the most powerful thing I did when I began the job was to say this is my fault. And that is saying the minister is accountable. It begins with that. 
But that then needs to go down the system, right? You need to be able to say the chief executive is accountable too. And then you need to say that the governor of the prison is accountable for what's happening in that prison. Uh, and that's got to go all the way through the system, really through the system. And people need to understand that if somebody escapes from prison, that's a pretty bad thing. And that, in effect, heads are going to roll. And if somebody hasn't succeeded in really getting a grip on their prison, there need to be consequences for this. And one of the reasons I'm a real admirer of the um, system of inspectors of prisons is that that is the only mechanism we really have from the outside of saying, what on earth is happening in Liverpool? What's going on in Birmingham? You know, and actually provoking some kind of reaction. A lot of my energy was about trying to make sure that we took seriously the reports from the prison uh, independent inspector and put it into our system because there was a lot of pressures in the system to say, oh, well, that's just the inspector. We have a completely independent way of analysing prisons, so we're not going to pay any attention to what the inspectors say because we have quite different metrics that we're going to assess ourselves on. Um, and, and, you know, it's not easy, of course, in any organisation to do this. Of course it isn't. Um, but you have to. You have to. I mean, just as if you turn up, let's say you were running a hotel chain and you turned up in a hotel and suddenly found that all the sheets were dirty in the rooms um, or there were rats running around the kitchen, right? You have to fire the hotel manager, right? I mean, it's the only way of really sorting this out. And we need to have a similar approach to the way we think about prisons. One thing I would say to caveat that, though, yes, even though I've talked about accountability and there should be accountability, I do see the flip side, which is if there is absolutely no money coming from the government and from the Treasury, and actually year on year there's cuts and cuts and cuts, there is an argument to say, well, how can you judge people on doing a good job if you're not going to give them the support that they need and provide the infrastructure that they need in order to be able to run a safe service? You're completely right. You're completely right. But the problem is... If you go down that path, you know, that way madness lies, right? I mean, if you're literally in a situation where your hotel chain is so badly funded that all the sheets have to be dirty because there's no laundry room and there's no way of cleaning the kitchen, and therefore there is no way of having a conversation with the hotel manager about whether it's a bad hotel or a good hotel because the whole thing's so... You're really finished, right? Because at that stage, there is no accountability. There's no improvement because morale has collapsed so much, expectations collapsed so much. And that's what I felt when I took over. That when I said to people, well, this is a disgrace, look at, you know, there are 30,000 assaults a year in prisons, we're gonna turn this around. The response was, well, there's nothing we can do about this. This is all because of cuts, right? We're not gonna be able to turn around violence. And I felt that is desperate, right? I mean, if your organization no longer believes that it can do anything, then of course you can't hold anybody accountable. You can't improve anything. You can't change anything. Um, and yes, you can get there if the cuts have got so extreme that people can't move. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm afraid it is true that I saw better governors and worse governors working with exactly the same budgets. I saw governors who, with exactly the same budgets in very difficult places with very difficult populations, managed to make it work, and that the best governors were not the ones that spent their time complaining about money. 
Well, I have to say your promotion to the cabinet um, in 2019, whilst it was a happy day for you to be promoted, it was a sad day that we lost you as as a prisons minister. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for your time. You're in America. I'm in England. So um, God, what time of the day is it with you, actually? So just, just coming up for lunchtime. All right. And it's the evening time for us over here. But um, thank you so much. And funnily enough, when I was doing my homework on you before the podcast, two really interesting facts about you that I didn't know before. One is that you speak 11 languages, which is hilarious because I'm still trying to master the art of actually being able to speak English as a dyslexic. And the other thing I didn't know about you is that you introduced the tax on plastic bags. Good facts you've got there. That is a good fact, isn't it? And um, plastic bags reduced by 85% in six months. Yeah, that, 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 that's an example of some things you do in government, which when you've done them are a total no-brainer. They're just incredibly successful. They take almost no effort to do. And you suddenly end up with billions fewer plastic bags. Yeah, that was a strange thing. So basically, I think what we've learned from today's podcast, is you're really good at sort of clearing up litter and sort of getting rid of plastic. And uh... yeah, that's it. Basically, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's what or at least at least I think some people in my family might say really good at telling other people to clean up the litter. (laughs) (laughs) Rory Stewart, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Lovely to see you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 